Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Israel's campaign against Hamas in Gaza began from the air, then an offensive on the ground. But another theater of conflict always loomed, Hamas's vast network of tunnels. We look at the high-tech and low-tech battles both to use them and to find them. And the sounds of the forest are quite calming. You know, the hum of the birds and bugs. It's the kind of thing that your Alexa plays to help you sleep. Well, it turns out that AI can use these sounds to map out an ecosystem's biodiversity. But first... Last night, on November 19th, Argentine voters elected Javier Milei to be their next president. Ana Lankes is The Economist's Latin America correspondent. Javier Milei won 56% of the vote in the presidential runoff, compared with 44% for Sergio Massa, who represented the stalwart Peronist movement. Milei's coalition, Liberty Advances, won in 20 of Argentina's 23 provinces and in the city of Buenos Aires. So I was in Javier Millet's bunker when the election results were announced and there was absolute euphoria in the room. They had rock music playing and his supporters were chanting many of the slogans of La Libertad Avanza, the coalition that Millet leads. And they were saying things like, que se vayan todos, which means all must go, referring to corrupt politicians. Now, the feeling was very, very different when I left the bunker and I spoke to some people who had not voted for Millet. They are terrified that their democracy is going to come under threat, that Argentina is heading towards a much more polarized situation. In his victory speech, Millet talked about how broken Argentina currently is and how Argentina needs a new path. But while the country certainly needs change, it's not clear that Millet has the right solutions to resolve Argentina's deep-seated problems. Anna, how did we get here? So Argentina has some of the highest levels of inflation in the world. Right now, annual inflation is around 150%. Around two in five people live below the poverty line. And people are really tired of the situation. Argentina has been in an economic mess for a very long time. And so they plumped for the person that was offering the most radical form of change. Going into this election, Millet and Massa pitched radically different visions for the country. 
Masa pitched a vision of continuity, one in which the state plays an important role in providing social benefits for the majority of the population, including extensive public education and healthcare, many social welfare programs. And Millet has a completely different vision. Millet wants to slash public spending. And he came in with a very strong discourse against what he calls Argentina's political caste. He says that they're responsible for Argentina's decline because they steal from hardworking Argentines. But what's surprising about this whole situation is that Massa actually won the first round of the presidential election in October. And in recent weeks, public opinion polls narrowed. I think many people went into this election not terribly convinced by either option. I spoke to one voter, for example, who admitted that he'd voted for Millet, but that he didn't actually really like Millet. He just wanted change in the country. How did Millet manage to swing it? One analysis for why Millet didn't do particularly well in the first round of the election was that he uses very aggressive rhetoric that alienates a lot of people. Millet often attacks his opponents in very personal terms. He uses swear words. For example, he's called the Pope, whom he considers to be a socialist, a jackass and an ignoramus. This is how he built his political brand. He rose to fame attacking politicians on television. In recent months, he has taken to brandishing a chainsaw at his campaign events because it's supposed to show how he's going to destroy the status quo. So all of that was very alienating for a lot of people. And he had a lot of very strange proposals that nobody was really asking for in Argentina, such as legalizing a market for the sale of human organs. He also suggested things like banning abortion because he's personally against it. All of those kinds of things basically turned a lot of people off. But... Over the past few weeks, he's dialed down some of the more radical rhetoric in order to appeal to more moderate voters. And while the Peronists focused on his personal quirks and even suggested that he was mentally unstable, those attacks don't seem to have been enough. Millet's job was also made significantly easier by the fact that the candidate running for the incumbent party, the Peronists, is the current economy minister who partially helped run the country's economy into the ground. Last time we spoke about Millet on the show, he was a candidate. And now Millet is the president-elect. What kind of change is he proposing? He says he wants to cut public spending by up to 15 percentage points of GDP. Public spending as a share of GDP is around 38% right now. He's also promised to slash export taxes and regulations, to scrap many taxes and to privatise most of Argentina's state-owned enterprises. He wants to reduce the number of government ministries from 18 to 8. Also, his flagship proposal is that he wants to eliminate the country's central bank and swap the peso, the Argentine currency, for the US dollar, which is the currency that most Argentines prefer to save in. He also has very extensive changes he wants to make to security policy. He's also suggested introducing more competition into the education system. So there's many, many different changes that he wants to make. And do you think he'll be able to deliver them? I think it'll be very challenging for Millet. First, because he's basically a political novice. He's been a congressman for about a year and a half. His coalition, which is called Liberty Advances, doesn't command the support of any of Argentina's powerful governors. And in the last general election, they only won around 38 of 257 seats in the lower house of Congress and seven out of 72 seats in the Senate, which means that it's going to be very difficult for Millet 
to build the consensus needed to pass many of these quite radical reforms. Between the first and the second round of the presidential election, he managed to get the support of some very important figures in Argentine politics. They are Mauricio Macri, a former center-right president, and Patricia Bullrich, who was a presidential candidate for the main center-right opposition coalition called Together for Change. However, that coalition, Together for Change, is made up of different factions, and some of the more moderate factions of the coalition didn't say that they would support Millet. So it's not entirely clear that Millet will have the backing of the entire coalition. And then there's also challenges within Millet's own coalition. He hasn't yet said who's going to be his economy minister or central bank chief. And there are a lot of worries that he might put ideologues in those positions instead of somebody with technical ability. But Anna, if he is able to push through with his plans, could they help the economy? So many economists actually think that some of Millet's proposals are quite dangerous. And the proposal that they most attack is dollarization. So far, Millet hasn't given many details on how he plans to dollarize the economy. But what's clear is that Argentina doesn't have enough dollars to pay for all the pesos in circulation and swap all pesos held in banks for dollars. And it'll be very difficult for Argentina to get the dollars it needs to do so because it's shut out from international capital markets, and nobody really wants to lend it money. Many economists fear that if Millet insists too much on his dollarization proposal, that could precipitate much higher inflation or even hyperinflation because it will lead Argentines to dump their pesos in droves. Another fear is that even though in the long term, cutting down the fiscal deficit and shrinking the size of the state are things that Argentina needs to do. In the short term, removing things like subsidies or reducing pensions could hurt the poor. And Argentina has a history of social protests which have ended the mandates of non-Peronist presidents. And so there's a real risk that if Javier Millet doesn't implement his economic and social proposals in a smart way, that that could lead to social protests and possibly to his government ending prematurely. Anna, what might this victory mean for Latin America more broadly? Millet fits awkwardly into the region's current political context because most of Latin America right now is governed by left-wing leaders whom Millet has either bashed or said that he wouldn't really associate with. So that is a danger. Millet's victory has also been compared to that of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, because before the second round of the presidential election, Millet and his team were spreading falsehoods and undermining trust in Argentina's electoral institutions. They were preparing the ground to claim fraud in the event that they would lose the election. So I think many Latin American leaders are looking at this election with fear and also anxiety as to what's going to happen to Argentina in the next few months. Anna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Ori. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. 
Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. For weeks, debate has raged about Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City. Israel has insisted that Hamas uses the hospital to hide an entrance or entrances to key parts of a vast tunnel network beneath Gaza. This weekend, the Israeli army released what it says is proof at last, a video of an entrance discovered under a booby-trapped pickup truck inside the hospital complex. Drone footage appears to show a concrete-lined shaft and the remains of a spiral staircase that the Israel Defense Forces say leads to another tunnel and a blast-proof door. By now, the truth is clear. Hamas wages war from hospitals, wages terror from hospitals. Hamas has repeatedly denied that tunnel entrances are under civilian infrastructure. But the tunnels are there, and they present Israel's army with a growing challenge. Israel's fight has essentially become one against an underground enemy. Benjamin Sutherland writes about defense technology for The Economist. Hamas has developed a massive tunnel system. For Israel to deal with that, it's going to need new ways of fighting, new intelligence systems to detect where those tunnels are, and of course, new systems to destroy those tunnels or, if necessary, to fight inside them. So aside from that hint at the overall extent of them, what what do we know about the tunnels? It's a formidable system of tunnels. Many of them interconnect. Some of them are reportedly at least 70 or 80 meters deep. The tunnels are used both to hide and protect supplies and fighters, but they're also used for maneuver. There's essentially two categories of tunnels, strategic tunnels, which conceal Hamas's senior leadership. The other type of tunnel networks are local defense tunnels, and the Israel Defense Forces have to prioritize the strategic tunnels. And unfortunately, those are the tunnels that are dug underneath schools and hospitals. But about that difficulty in finding them, if they are of such a great extent and people are popping into and out of them all the time, why are they so hard to find? Well, first of all, the entrances for the most part have been dug inside structures, so they're not directly visible from the skies or satellites. So when tunnels are found, how are they found? Well, one approach is to use drones that can offer a persistent stare, essentially loitering platforms that can look for patterns of life. If there's a large number of people that go into a small structure and no one comes out for a day or two, that's a good indication that there may be a tunnel entrance inside that structure. So that's one thing. Another way drones are used is to follow the movement of goods and items that may be used in tunneling, but it's not that easy. It doesn't help that Israel's network of human spies in Gaza largely dried up in the years following Israel's unilateral withdrawal from the Gaza Strip in 2005. And so if that's a not hugely effective and very labor-intensive way to do it, what are the other ways of doing it? Well, one way to do it is by using something called synthetic aperture radar. It's essentially a radar that bounces signals off the Earth's surface. 
and on subsequent flyovers, changes in surface topology of even just several millimeters can be detected. AI is used to track these changes, and certain styles of tunneling can create topographical deformations. One of the challenges, I was told, is that Hamas's engineers have become, quote, pretty crafty at tunneling without causing any of these deformations on the surface of the earth. Another approach is using what is called ground-based sonar, just like the sort used in submarines. When you're doing this on the ground, this can involve putting a metal plate on the surface of the earth, slamming it with a sledgehammer, and then picking up the signals that come back moments later. That actually does work much better than the ground penetrating radar. And one source told me that you can easily detect a sizable air cavity at even a depth of 100 meters. Of course, operating these systems in a war zone presents all sorts of dangers. And so once a tunnel is detected, what happens next? Well, in many cases, the IDF soldiers will need to explore the tunnel. The hostages are expected to be held underground. So where possible, the IDF will deploy drones, for example, a quadcopter that uses computer vision to fly through enclosed spaces. That drone can also carry munitions. There's also plenty of different drone models that are able to roll through tunnels and even climb stairs. So those will be used where possible. And if it's established that there aren't any hostages inside and this just becomes a destroy mission, is that right? Yes, the IDF has said that these tunnels need to be destroyed, but they need to be permanently destroyed. So you have a number of options. One is aerial bombardment with bunker buster bombs. So their bomb penetrates the ground a certain distance, then it detonates. Let's keep in mind that for the strategic tunnels under schools, hospitals, clinics, that sort of thing, You've got a risk of civilian deaths, which Israel would like to minimize. Another approach is to carry or toss conventional explosives into the tunnels, but that doesn't necessarily destroy the entire tunnel. Another option are sponge bombs, which is an innovative system developed by the IDF specifically for dealing with these tunnels, emulsion chemical bombs that contain liquids that once tossed into a tunnel, they mix. That creates an expansive foam that quickly expands to fill the entire entrance and quickly hardens. Now, these sponge bombs are not a permanent solution, but they are providing enough time for the IDF to plant traditional explosives after setting up a security perimeter for the permanent destruction of the tunnel. It sounds like what you're describing is is essentially a, a sort of a technological race, making and hiding and operating from tunnels versus finding them and destroying them. Do, do you have a sense for who's got the greater pace in that technological race? Israel certainly has some impressive technology on its side, but I'd caution against any conclusion that technology is going to make it easy for Israel to carry the day. This is going to be a brutal fight. Hamas fighters have been learning. In fact, I was told by one source that Hamas has become much more careful with how it uses telephones. For a time, tunnel entrances could be detected 
by a large number of phone signals disappearing at one spot. Well, Hamas has taken precautions to not allow that to be done anymore. So Hamas is adapting. It is a clever fighter. The difficulty of using such technologies in a crowded urban theater with civilians in the area is formidable. Benjamin, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. For a lot more behind the technology and the history of tunnel warfare, our science and technology show, Babbage, covered the topic in depth. The latest episode is out now, and you can hear it if you're a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus or to our print or digital editions. Rainforests are alive with the sound of animals. But while the rich audio tapestry of the birds and the bees is to most of us simply a pleasant background, it can also be tremendously useful to ecologists. Every area has a unique sound, and those sounds tell us a story about that environment. Sophie Roberts writes about science for The Economist. In natural environments, like rainforests, the animal sounds tell us about the biodiversity in that space. Essentially, those sounds can be used to measure the health of ecosystems, and that's much easier than going through the bush looking for animal traps or droppings, for instance. So this sound-based approach is called bioacoustic analysis, However, the process is rather time-consuming and requires an expert pair of ears. But this is about to change. And how so? So one option is to have artificial intelligence to do the job, which was demonstrated in a recent study by Jörg Müller, an ecologist at the University of Würzburg in Germany. So you know how we have smartphone apps that identify birds or bats or mammals by listening to the sounds they make? The researcher's idea was to apply the same principle to conservation work. However, in this case, the researchers were not just looking to identify different types of species, but also the number of each species. It's a bit like having an orchestra and not just identifying the number of sections, but being able to identify the number of instruments in each section. And this is called species composition and is crucial when measuring biodiversity accurately. So tell me a little bit more about how they went about doing this research. So the researchers took recordings across 43 sites in the Ecuadorian rainforest. Some sites were relatively pristine old-growth forests. Others had been cleared for pasture or cacao planting. And then there were sites that had been used for agriculture but had been abandoned, allowing the forest to regrow. And these sites were at various stages of recovery. And... The sound recordings were taken four times every hour over a two-week period. Okay, and then what? So first, they used the conventional methods by using an expert to interpret the bioacoustics, which involved listening to the animal calls, identifying them manually, and allowing the expert to visualise that sound and quantify that sound. And what they found was the longer the land had been free from agricultural activity, the greater the biodiversity it hosted. 
After the experts, it was the artificial intelligence's turn. The researchers fed their recordings to the AI models that had been trained using samples from a previous study elsewhere in Ecuador to identify 75 bird species from their calls. And what they found was that the AI tools could identify the sounds as well as the experts. So basically, this means that AI could one day be used for measuring biodiversity. And what's really important about this is it doesn't require an expert. It can be used locally by forest rangers, for instance, and is much cheaper and easier to operate. But Sophie, not every creature in the rainforest makes a noise that you can actually hear. So how does AI go about measuring things like the numbers of bugs or tiny insects being drowned out by louder bird calls? Well, yeah, that was something that the researchers were also really curious about. So separately from using the sound recordings, Dr. Muller and his colleagues used light traps to capture night-flying insects. They then measured the numbers and the diversity for each area, and they actually found that the diversity of the noisy animals that they'd been measuring was a reliable proxy for the diversity of the quieter ones as well. So... Sound analysis can be a good rule of thumb for all of the biodiversity in one area. So it sounds like the biodiversity researchers have a really powerful new tool in their hands then. Yes, they they absolutely do. And this has relevance outside of ecology as well. So companies such as L'Oreal and Shell have been spending money on forest restoration projects around the world, largely under pressure from their customers. And... It's really difficult to be able to measure that recovery. So Dr. Muller hopes an automated approach to checking on the results could help monitor such efforts and give a standardised way to measure whether they are working as well as their sponsors say. All we need to do is let the computers listen. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus, you're missing out on a lot of great content, like our most recent weekend edition, a tale of how one man from the Donetsk region of Ukraine found some solace in the forest. If you'd like to subscribe, you can get a free one-month trial by following the link in our show notes. And we'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.